All right, if you can start making your way back to your seats. And if you've got your Bibles... I'm going to ask Tim Moore if he could come up and read our scripture reading for us this evening. If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 18. We're going to be looking at verses 18 through 30. Okay. Our, uh, our scripture reading is from Luke 18, verses 18 through 30. A certain ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. All these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, who then can be saved? Jesus replied, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Peter said to him, we have left all we had to follow you. Truly, I tell you, Jesus said to them, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. Jesus took the 12 aside and told them, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be delivered over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, and spit on him. They will flog him and kill him. On the third day, he will rise again. The disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them, and they did not know what he was talking about. Okay, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, again, we come before you, uh, thanking you for all your many blessings, God. We thank you for um, uh, this Lord's Day in which we uh, gather together to worship you, Lord. Father, we pray for uh, the the Christ-centered uh, gospel-preaching churches of, of our community. Um, God, we ask your blessing on each of them, um, that, uh, that the various communities that they represent, um, God, the various gospel ministries um, that they represent, God, that you would bless each and every one of them. 
Um, God, that your spirit would go before them uh, and that, um, God, that you would prepare the ground as, as those seeds of the gospel are sown, um, as they are watered. Um, God, we ask that you would, through your power and by your will, that you would bring um, those, those gospel seeds to, to, uh, to germinate. God, to, to put down roots, to sprout up. Um, God, to grow and to eventually bear fruit. Um, God, we pray that for all of our brother and sister congregations across um, our community. Um, God, our country is in in great need uh, of revival. Each and every day, we see more and more things in in the news, in our world. Um, God, even within the church and in our own lives, um, God, that more and more forces pulling us um, from you, um, trying to divide us from each other. God, trying to to sow um, seeds of, of disunity and discontentment. God, that instead of, of looking to the world um, as, as lost people, for whom we have the saving message of the gospel. God, we look to them as adversaries. God, none of these things are the way that you have, have called us to be. And so uh, we ask that you would work in us. Um, God, that we would God, have a heart for um, those um, who have not heard the message of the gospel, that we would focus our lives and our intention uh, on, on bringing the gospel to them. God, of, of blessing them uh, and, and serving them, God, all with the intention of being able to share with them um, the good news of Jesus Christ. Help that be the heartbeat of our church. Uh, help it be uh, the center of, of each and every relationship we have. Uh, God, help us to, in all things, uh, hold your son up uh, and carry him before us. We thank you. We praise you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so uh, we're continuing our study in, in the Gospel of Luke. And we come to probably a very familiar story for a lot of us, the, the story of the rich young ruler. Um, and uh, it's a neat story because there's a lot of interesting little things in it that, that make it unique. Um, and that's probably could be said of any place in the scriptures, but certainly of this passage. Um, so I, I was thinking... I was watching a, a thing, and I can't remember what it was on. It seems like it was on History Channel or something like that. And it was talking about idioms, right? It was talking about little sort of colloquial sayings from, from different parts of the world and different parts of, of the United States. And um, one of the ones that they mentioned was the, the saying, you can't get there from here. You've probably heard somebody say that before, right? You can't get there from here. And so um, they, I can't remember exactly what the illustration they were using, but it seems like there was one about a, uh, a financial planner who was talking to some people who had come, and they said, hey, here's our assets. Here's what we want to retire on. What do we need to do with our assets so that we can retire on this much money? And, and the, the financial planner said, you can't get there from here. Okay. Uh, basically to say, uh, there's no way to do that. Now, obviously there's, there's a counterintuitiveness to that, right? Um, there ought to always be a way, some way to get from one place to another. Um, but that's what the whole point of the, the sort of saying is. It's pointing out that there's some sort of impediment, right? Some sort of something that is keeping you from getting to the place that, uh, you would like to be or, or whatever. Um, 
In this passage, we have a man who comes and basically asks probably the most important question that anybody can ask. And that is, what must I do to inherit eternal life? All right? I mean, you may have never thought about that, but that is probably the most important question that anybody can ask. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, what I want to point to you in this passage tonight is that Jesus, in no uncertain terms, basically says, you can't get there from here. You cannot have eternal life on your own. It's an impossibility. Notice a few things before we kind of dig into the passage. Number one is this, is that this man's question, I think, is a sincere question. Mark tells us in his account of this story um, that this man comes and kneels before Jesus. He calls him good teacher as he addresses him. Um, this is a man, as we see in the story, who is obviously a moral man. We get the impression that this is not one of the scribes of the Pharisees, right? This is not a guy who is coming trying to trap Jesus in his words and ask sneaky, deceptive questions to try to get Jesus to say something they want him to say. Now, this is a sincere man. Seeking God. Notice the second thing. It's sort of an interesting piece in the story. Verse 19. When the, when the rich young ruler says, good teacher, Jesus responds to him and says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God. That's a weird thing for Jesus to say. All right. It likely probably bothers some of us because of our understanding of the doctrine of who Jesus Christ is. Jesus is God, and he is good. He is sinless. He is perfect. So why does Jesus say that? What is he saying? Is he saying that he is not those things? No, Jesus is sinless. Jesus is good. In fact, he is God. But he says that phrase because he's trying to reorient the conversation from the get-go. And we'll see what we what I mean by that in a minute. And then the third thing, kind of getting us into the passage, is this. Notice what Jesus says in his second comment, verse 20. He says, you know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false witness. Honor your father and mother. Now, the Ten Commandments are usually broken down into two sort of categories. The first four commandments are vertical commandments. They have to do with the way we relate to God. And so, no other gods before him, no graven images, do not take his name in vain, remember the Sabbath, right? Those are the vertical commandments. Then the last six are horizontal commandments that deal with our relationship with others, So Jesus listed six, murder, seven, adultery, eight, stealing, nine, false witness. And then he goes back to five and says, honor your father and mother. And then he stops. He leaves one out. What does he leave out? The 10th commandment, which is thou shalt not covet. Was that an accident? In the context of this passage, I don't think so. In fact, I think what we see here is that occasionally in the scriptures, what is conspicuously left out is at least as important as what is included sometimes. The fact that he didn't mention that one commandment is going to play heavily into the first thing that Jesus wants us to know in this passage. So the first thing he's showing us in this whole passage 
is this. There is no such thing as a good man. No man is good. Verse 21. So Jesus lists those commandments. He says, the, the young man says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, you know the commandments. It, it, these are the commandments. And verse 21 says, the man said, all of these I have kept since I was a boy. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. So Jesus leaves out coveting because it's the very sin that this man is particularly guilty of. Again, I think it's critical that we reiterate that this is a sincere man. He's when he says to Jesus, I have followed all of these rules. I have followed the, all these commandments since my youth. He's not being uh, uh, sort of falsely uh, puffed up or something. He's being sincere. He's saying, I have tried to follow uh, the Ten Commandments since the time that I can remember. And it's interesting because, again, in Mark's account of the of the story, it says Jesus looked at him and loved him. Okay, I think that's an indication that Jesus doesn't look at him and say, you know, you idiot, you don't know what you're talking about, you don't, you haven't kept the commandments, you're a liar, you're a hypocrite. That's not what happens. Jesus looks at him and is sympathetic because he goes, this is a young man who has sincerely sought after trying to live in a, a righteous way. So there are Christian traditions, other traditions that would look at this young man's pursuit of virtue and purity almost like they're a negative. They would immediately associate an attempt to live a holy life as priggish or prudish or pharisaical or morally superior, almost as if the gospel was opposed to moral goodness in some way. And here's the deal. I think that's wrong. I think the desire to live in faithfulness, in godliness, is right, and it's good. But what this passage is showing us is that ultimately we are incapable of doing that perfectly. The way the Ten Commandments seem to function, for particularly in the Gospels, is, is on one side, they are, they are certainly there to give us a standard of how we should live. But they play an even more critical function when we see the Gospels. They are basically a diagnostic tool so that we will realize that none of us are morally pure. None of us have lived up to the commandments the way that we should have. That, having said that, they don't cease to be the standard to which we aspire. But we realize now more than ever that we have not lived up to those commandments. And so you remember the places like in the Sermon on the Mount where, where it says, you know, uh, uh, I'm, I'm not some, I'm, I'm not a murderer. You say you're not a murderer. Well, really, do you have hatred or anger in your heart towards other? Because if you do, then you are a murderer. Are you an adulterer? Well, no, certainly not. I've never committed adultery. Really? Do you harbor lust in your heart? Because if you do, then you are an adulterer. The Ten Commandments and the law in general become a diagnostic for us so that we can see our own sin and acknowledge it. And coveting all the more 
Because coveting is, is, it's the most interesting of all the, the ten, sins of the Ten Commandments in a way, right? Um, coveting is the secret sin. It's the sin that doesn't look like a sin. It's the covert sin. And it's the sin that it seems like everybody does. Coveting is the very sin that Paul uses to demonstrate how the law opens our eyes to sin. Showing us that we are sin, we were sinful all along. In Romans 7, he says this, he says, what shall we say? That the law is sin by no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it was to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Right? Coveting makes the example perfect on that because I feel like probably with murder, you know, you murder somebody and you probably would know that you murdered them and that was something wrong. Okay, but covetings, man, we have institutionalized coveting in the United States, right? Um, it's the American dream. That's what we do. It's a, it's a good thing. Um, we, we covet all the time and just think it's the normal way that we engage um, with the world. But the Ten Commandments convict us. They show us that even moral people who, who don't lie, don't cheat, don't steal, don't kill, on the surface, are still guilty of not having the heart of God. They don't want what God wants. And that's why Jesus makes that comment that seems so weird at the beginning of the, of the story. When he says, why do you call me good? No one but God is good. What's he pointing out there? The, the point is, is this. The, the rich young ruler was coming to Jesus, essentially saying, Jesus, you're a good man. I'm a good man, and I want to make sure that the level of goodness that I have is enough goodness to inherit eternal life. And so Jesus' response, which again, is it can be confusing a little bit, because we know the secret that the rich young ruler does not know, that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is God in the flesh, so to speak. But the rich young ruler is saying men can be good. They can be good enough to warrant salvation. And I want to make sure I've achieved that level of goodness so that I can be welcomed into eternity. But Jesus reorients the whole conversation from the get-go. Jesus basically saying, you've already misunderstood something very critical. Nobody's good. Nobody's good enough. No human has enough goodness in and of themselves to be right with God. The only one who is morally pure, who has that kind of goodness, is God himself. And so at the end of the day, there is no such thing as a good man. Now, if there is no such thing as a good man, then what does that mean for salvation? Well, again, it means you can't get there from here. Salvation through morality is impossible. Look at verse 23. So it says, when the the rich young ruler, when he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. Jesus looked at him and said, how hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. So this passage about the camel and the eye of the needle has has been misunderstood um, and and misapplied in certain circles of the church. 
Uh, and so what I want to do is start off by dispelling an urban myth about this passage. Okay. Now you may have never heard this urban myth. I've, I've noticed that in certain denominations and certain different, you know, corners of, of the Christian world, not everybody, this is not apparently a story that everybody knows in the way I'm going to tell it to you. Um, but it is in certain circles that I have run in, in, in the Baptist world over the years. So, so, so some people read this passage and this is what they say about it. They say, let me explain that whole camel in the eye of the needle thing. The eye of the needle was, and just to preface, this is wrong, what I'm about to tell you, but this is what they would say. The eye of the needle was actually a real place in Jerusalem. It was this small passage through the city wall. And as caravan camels would come to Jerusalem and they would arrive at the city, they would be stacked high with these goods from foreign lands. And the only way they could get into the city was the owners would have to unburden the camels of all their their possessions so that they could fit through this gate. Okay, so again, that's that's one way that I have on multiple occasions in Baptist circles heard that passage explained. And so the implication there is that the rich need to unburden themselves of their worldly possessions so that as a symbol of, of, of their, their um, rejecting their own covetousness, just like this young man, and then having done so, they'll be able to enter the kingdom of heaven. So that is to say the young man, if he had said yes to Jesus, when Jesus said, sell everything you have, give it to the poor and come and follow me, it's almost as if to say if he had done that, he would have been good enough to receive eternal life because he would have obeyed the commandment correctly. Here's the problem with that interpretation of this fact. Number one, that story. Um, number one, there is no historical or biblical evidence for the idea of such a gate ever existing. Okay, So when you go back in like church history and you look for any reference to the eye of the needle gate in Jerusalem, you, you won't find it. Um, it doesn't pop up until, I can't remember for sure, but it's like the 16 or 1700s when pilgrims are going to the promised land and asking tour guides in the promised land, hey man, where's that eye of the needle gate I've heard about? And they go, oh, it's right over here. Come look at this gate. See, this was where the eye of the needle gate was. Okay. It didn't exist. It, it never existed. Now here's the funny thing is you go, well, of course it didn't exist. Why on earth if you were a camel driver that had all this like stuff, why wouldn't you just go to another gate, right? Like, why would you come to the one gate where you had to unload everything? Just go around to the other side or, or whatever. Um, it doesn't make any sense that it would even be there. And here's why that's important. Here's why it's important to understand that is because to understand it that way completely takes away the meaning of the whole passage. What Jesus is saying in this passage is much more direct than this idea of, unencumbering yourself of, of your worldly possessions to somehow merit um, or humble yourself so that you can enter the kingdom. This is what he's actually saying. He's saying, how do you fit the largest animal common in Israel, the camel, through the smallest opening common in Israel, the eye of the needle? How do you do that? And the answer is, you don't. It's impossible. Camels don't go through the eye of needles. It is impossible for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. 
And you say, you sure about that, Ash? Seriously? It gets worse. Because look what the disciples say in verse 26. Those who heard him asked, well, then who can be saved? Notice they realize the true implication of what Jesus is saying here. Because here's the deal. Jesus is saying this exceptionally moral man is actually a lawbreaker because of his covetousness. He loves the things of the world more than he loves God. He seeks his own pleasure and comfort in the things of the world more than he seeks after using those things to honor God and serve others. And as a lawbreaker, it is impossible for him to be accepted with God. And therefore, he is lost. But guess what? The disciples immediately realize something. They go, you don't have to be rich to be covetous. They begin to think to themselves, I know what Jesus has been teaching about the Ten Commandments. I know what my heart has demonstrated by its own law breaking. If this godly man can't be saved, then who can be saved? Not only can anybody be covetous, everyone is covetous. And therefore, they're lawbreakers too. And so they ask, then who can be saved? They realize the impossibility of salvation extends not only to the rich, but to all people. So the answer is, who then can be saved? Nobody can. Nobody can be saved by their own goodness. So that's the end of the sermon. Good night. You can go home from there. I'm just kidding. That would be a downer way to end this, okay? There's one more section, though. While salvation is impossible for man by himself, with God, all things are possible. Verse 27, Jesus replied, what is impossible with man is possible with God. You see, here's the thing. If salvation is a function of your effort, your goodness, then salvation is an impossible goal. If it's about your moral excellence, if it's about your checking off a list, if it's about you doing things by the book, if any of those things are the standard by which we are saved, we are all doomed, every single one. Man can't save himself. It's impossible. But you know what? Nothing is impossible for God. And so something interesting happens. The story of the rich man who wants to know how he can find eternal life, if you'll notice this, falls between two other stories. One that we did last week, and obviously the one that's in this text that follows it. What did we talk about last week? Two weeks ago, sorry, because we had the, the Samuel sermon that, that was in the middle. Two weeks ago, what did we talk? We talked about receiving the kingdom the way a child receives. Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. That was this story. Then we had this story about the rich young ruler. And then what does it follow in verse 31? Jesus took the 12 aside and told them, we are going up to Jerusalem. 
And everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be delivered over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, spit on him. They will flog him and kill him. And on the third day, he will rise again. And the disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them. And they did not know what he was talking about. Here's the deal. I don't think it's a coincidence that the story about the man who wants to find out how to have eternal life comes between a story about receiving the kingdom as a gift and the cross. Does that make sense? When this man asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The context of the teaching is it has to be received freely as a gift. And it's all going to revolve around the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The grace of God demonstrated in the cross of Christ is the only way that we can have eternal life. No one is good enough, but through the death and resurrection of Jesus, the impossible becomes possible. Our sin is paid for. The perfect righteousness that was demanded of us is accomplished vicariously through Jesus. And we are justified before God forever. Verse 28 and 29 are an interesting, and again, this, this passage has so many little weird turns. Like you're like, wait a minute, what's going on? How are these pa- passages connected? Verse 28 and 29 come in between Jesus' revelation of God making the impossible possible and the revelation of the cross. And it's Peter's declaration about his own obedience. And again, Jesus' response seems like the opposite of what he would say, given everything that I just talked about. Peter says in the middle of this, right? So he's like, it's impossible for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. But with God, anything is possible. And so what does Peter do? Peter comes up and says, well, we've left everything to follow you. Okay? So what's going on there? Has Peter just completely missed the point? This rich young ruler was unwilling to give up everything to follow you, Jesus. But we have. We disciples have given up everything. Does that mean that we're in the clear? That we're good enough to be saved? I'm not sure if Peter's saying that or not. But I think I know why this passage is put here. Jesus' response to him, again, is counterintuitive unless we, I think, understand what's going on. What does Jesus say in verse 29? Truly, I tell you. Jesus said to them, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. So, right, is Jesus doing a 180 on us? Is he saying your works can't save you? And then he's now saying, yeah, yeah, but if you leave everything, your works can save you. I don't think that's what's going on. Jesus is clarifying something because it would be easy for us and people do all the time to swing hard the other way on this topic. To hear the words, your works can't save you, your morality can't save you, your goodness can't save you, and then to respond to that by saying, well, good, then none of those things matter. I can take this get out of hell free card that Jesus has offered and go live however I want. 
And if I mess up a bunch, who cares? What difference does it make? It's all about grace anyway, right? We're all saved by Jesus' actions, not by our own actions. What difference does it make if I'm good, bad, or indifferent? It doesn't matter because at the end of the day, it's all about grace. We might as well live in sin and godlessness. Or as Paul puts it in Romans, let us sin so that grace may abound, some people say. But Jesus is saying these things to say wrong. That is not the attitude that we have. When we learn that our salvation is apart from our own works, it is only in Jesus Christ, that should not lead us to then live in in godlessness. In fact, what does Jesus say? He says there's actually great reward in obedience. There is great reward in faithfulness. And our reward will be directly proportional to that obedience. That's, again, something that we lose all the time. We say, oh, man, God's just going to bless everybody. It's all, it's, his grace is sufficient. It's all going to be equal in heaven. And yet, over and over again in the scriptures, we get this picture like, there is a reward for obedience that is different from the reward for disobedience. The Bible talks about our works being burned up at the judgment, that the good works will survive and receive a reward, that the, that the evil works we have done will be burned up, and that we'll still be saved, but we will be saved as one escaping through the fire. Our works can't make us righteous. They can't make us redeemed. They can't make us sons and daughters of the king. But they're still important. So live faithfully, right? Fight sin. Pursue holiness. There is blessing and reward for our faithfulness. Both in this life and in the life to come. But never for a moment think that your faithfulness has earned you acceptance with God. Never hold yourself up as good because you have followed the law in some ways. Because only God, by his grace, through his son, received as a gift by faith, can do that. Only God can make us right with himself. All right? And so what I want to do is is, is close and, you know, again, it, it's kind of an odd sermon. There's a lot of different ways. I mean, it's a sermon about, I mentioned a couple of weeks ago about how we've been doing a whole lot of sanctification sermons, you could say, and then we were hitting a couple of salvation justification sermons or whatever. And this one's both. In the big, convoluted kind of different back and forths that go on in this passage, we see both of those things. That God is calling into account the fact that we cannot save ourselves. And yet he's saying, and yet still be obedient, be faithful. Live in a way that honors the gospel, not one that takes the gospel in a presumptuous way. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. And you know what? If you're here and you have never heard the word that your works can't save you, that only faith in Jesus Christ can save you, then I would love to have a conversation with you about that, about what it means to trust in Jesus Christ alone, not ourselves, not our goodness, not our ceremony, not our, any of those things, that we would only trust in Jesus Christ for our salvation. But if you're here today and you have trusted in Jesus Christ, then then don't negate or underestimate the, the, the importance of seeking after God 
and living according to his word and commandments in holiness. Don't undermine those things. Don't take advantage of the grace of God and treat his grace as if it is something to be sinned against just so his grace will seem all the more. We don't honor God when we live that way. We take advantage of God. So let's go to the Lord and ask that he would use this passage and and work in our hearts and do the work that he would have done in our hearts. Father God, you are good and gracious, God, that you have um, in, in at the moment of our need, God, because of our own sin and rebellion, because of the sin and rebellion that has been uh, part of us since the beginning, not only of our lives, but since the beginning of mankind, um, God, you could have righteously and rightly left us in our sin. God, you could have um, brought judgment, and that would have been um, completely within in the bounds of your justice. And yet, God, out of your great love, out of your great mercy, God, out of the graciousness of your own being, God, you sent your son into the world uh, to die in our place, God, to make salvation possible for us. God, you came into the world so that your sons and daughters, their sin could be paid for, God, the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ could be imputed to them. And that they would live in a newness of life, counted righteous in your sight because of Jesus. God, we ask that that truth would, would be the center of our being. God, that it would be, um, as the hymn says, that the theme of our song. God, that it would be the message that we take out to the world. Not a message of... of um, just plain morality, um, not a, a, a message of social convention, not a, a message of, of checking boxes, but of a life that has been truly changed by the grace of Jesus Christ. God, as we are changed by your gospel, we ask that your gospel would change us, God, that we would live in a new way, that we would walk not according to the flesh, but that we would walk according to the spirit that we would live in a way that honors your character and your word and the gospel by which we have been saved. That in everything we do, that the world would look on and not see us self-righteous, not see us pompous, God, not seeing us as holding ourselves above other people, but God, that they would see in us Christ's righteousness. God, that they would see in us a humble obedience um, that seeks to to know Christ and follow him truly. God, that they would see that and not want to know how we do it, but that they would want to see our Savior and how he has worked these things in our life. God, help us to be those people. Help us to to know you and to follow you in all things. We thank you. We praise you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand and uh, sing the closing song.
see you tonight. Happy Pentecost, by the way. I forgot that it was Pentecost today um, because my passage didn't have anything to do with Pentecost. So I just, like a bad liturgical person, just completely forgot about it. Um, uh, Pentecost is, is the, the Jewish festival of weeks. It was, it was seven sevens, seven weeks of seven, right? And then Pentecost is the 50th. It's the 50th day after the Passover. Um, and so it was a, it was part of the harvest festival of, of, in Israel and, and had various connotations. But here's one of the cool things about it, just in, as we close. Um, so obviously for us as New Testament believers, um, Pentecost was when the Holy Spirit descended on, on the apostles and on the early church. Um, what's also interesting is that in Jewish understanding, Pentecost happened to be the day which Moses was given the law at Sinai. Right. And so there is this cool, um, uh, parallel, right, between, um, the, 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 the blessings and the dispensations of the Old Testament and the New Testament. That on Pentecost, the law was given to the people of Israel. And on Pentecost, the spirit was given, um, to the New Testament believers. And so that's a, that's a cool picture that we have in, um, in, in the, the, the festival and the celebration of, of the holiday of Pentecost or as the, Jewish people usually call it the festival of weeks. Okay. So anyway, um, that's just a freebie. You don't have to do that's totally free. You don't have to pay me for that or anything. Um, hope you have a great week. Uh, we'll see you next week again. Remember the couple of things that we left off, um, the bulletin men's leadership meeting tomorrow night, men's meeting Saturday morning. Um, and then on your bulletin, um, new members class next Sunday night and VBS coming up, put it on your calendar. It's the 26th through the 30th. Cool. Is that right?
Yeah, okay. Um, all right, here's the benediction as you go. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. Turn his face towards you and give you peace. We'll see you next week. Thank you.